You know you're jonesing for tofu. Well, we got a whole plate full for you here tonight on Vegan Radio. Hello and welcome to Vegan Radio number 105. We have a very special guest co-host today, a blast from the past. With her diastema shining through her smile, <laughs> it is the one and the only Megan Shekel. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, I am back. She's back for one show. <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting for this laugh for Don't years. I know it. <laughs> Yes, we have to. We're gonna have to edit carefully to make sure we don't hurt anyone's eardrums. But oh, we should let that uh, cat out of her cage. We have a little cat friend. <laughs> we should let that cat out of prison. <laughs> Free the cats. Anyway, the cat's not really in a prison those days. <laughs> Unless uh, you consider my mother's home a prison. Yes, we're all in the prison together. <laughs> in fact, we may all be in prison. Well, that's the thing about life, isn't it? We don't know if we're in the Matrix or not. We're in the Matrix, that's yeah. for sure. Vegan Radio. There you have it, listeners. You're in the Matrix. Do what you can to get out. But we have a, a, a featured um, lecture today, actually, from the 2012... Veg Curious event that happened at Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary. It was four speakers, Jenny Brown, the co-founder of Woodstock Sanctuary, uh, Chris Carr, Crazy Sexy Cancer, and Sharon Gannon, co-founder of Jiva Mukti Yoga. And the interview that, or the uh, lecture that we're going to feature today is Will Tuttle, author of World Peace Diet. And uh, Meg and I, we listened to the whole thing last night and revisited it was pretty enlightening he's an awesome speaker i feel enlightened (laughs) he's actually he's actually floating he's floating right now into the ethers he's so enlightened oh yeah well yeah that's uh you know joseph you know what joseph campbell said about will title don't you i don't want to make sure that that's the same joseph campbell noted mythologist and writer (laughs) yeah when playing the piano he works from his buddha nature Floating, not trying. Beyond mistakes. Wow. But today we're not going to really talk about Will Tuttle's music. We're going to talk about <laughs> Will Tuttle's words. What he has to say. And we're going to talk about our own connection to the uh, divine, the spirit. Yes, I. The spirit world. The, uh, the layer of reality that lies just underneath this layer of reality that we all perceive the unseen (laughs) the unseen and somewhat unknown yes i but um so don't get freaked out listeners (laughs) (laughs) probably if they've been listening to you for all these years they're probably a little freaked out it's probably why they're coming back yeah like what (laughs) what's gonna happen next exactly (laughs) um so yeah, we're in uh, Rochester, New York together and uh, you know, Megan's family lives in Rochester, my family lives in Syracuse, so we traveled out this way together and had our separate Christmases, but now we're hanging out for a little bit and um, Megan's, what's new in your life for you? Uh, There's a moving lot. Moving to Canada or something? <laughs> There's a lot new in my life. Um, moving, getting married. Getting and married. Getting married. When were you going to tell me? I... <laughs> 
It was a surprise for the show, actually. Are you going to marry a Canadian? Are you going to marry a Canadian? <laughs> I am marrying a Canadian. Actually, a... Watch out, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so... Better build one of those walls at the border. <laughs> Take a note from Arizona. Yes, so I'm getting married, moving to British Columbia, and going to have some adventures there. Yeah? You're going to bring the vegan message? I'm definitely going to bring, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring the message kind of underneath the umbrella of what I say is like a love message, which I feel like is including spirituality, it's including veganism, it's including body movement. You know, just kind of body like movement, yoga. Yeah. Oh, yoga. <laughs> <laughs> body movement, body awareness. So I was, I was like tossing and turning last night. That was my body movement. That was your body. Movement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listeners! I could bring people to veganism that way. That was... Has anything changed over all these years? How do you put up with this host, Derek Pashupa Goodwin? Well, it's my interesting co-host to help them through. <laughs> so you've been, for the last uh, few years, you've been preparing meals at a retreat center. I have. You've be you went from, probably when you were last on Vegan Radio, you were running the vegan bakery, Oh Sweet Mamas. Correct. You were the owner and main baker. That's true. You weren't the best scone baker. I <laughs> Somehow, listeners, I taught Derek how to make the scones, and for some reason, he thinks he became the master. Yeah, well, I don't quite understand this, because the master taught the student, but... That's what happens. <laughs> the student, student becomes the master. Yes. Yeah, so I became so good at baking that Megan had to go into another field, so she moved over to <laughs> food preparation. <laughs> she went from sweet to savory. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, well, my, I feel like our, our, our intro into veganism together, um, one of our main actions and messages was that we decided we were going to make everything that we had had before we became vegan just as amazing as we had had it before but vegan and that we weren't going to we weren't going to miss anything in our food and so for somehow we concentrated a lot on sweets because <laughs> i feel like it's kind of easy to that's make that's what vegans do that that's what vegans do well the, i mean the 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 desserts really you know are are a little bit trickier than main foods cuz there's so many like ethnic foods like Chinese and Indian and Thai that are all so amazing already vegan. There, there doesn't have to be much work there to veganize that stuff. But I feel like about 20 years ago, back when we started, um, yeah, there was there was a big focus on like making those vegan desserts just as good as the desserts that we had had in the past. So that was our intro in and spent some years doing that. And then as my path unfolded and evolved with veganism um, I, I became more interested in bringing foods into my body that really made me feel good and gave me energy and made me feel really centered and alive and vital and those things um, chocolate <laughs> chocolate mm. I mean of course I love those things but the things that I've been um, 
you know, kind of trying to encourage other people to get to get into is starting to include green juices in their life. Um, a lot more vegetables, raw vegetables, and just a, just more of a healthier a healthier bent. That's bent. Is that a Canadian? I, <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I know sometimes my vocab can be a little a little too <laughs> high a, for I'm you to a, understand. I'm on a but different bent, eh? I, <laughs> You'll have to look that one up, Derek. Okay. On some downtime. <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's um, that's basically been my focus over, I'd say, the past you know five years is just getting people more interested. Definitely sticking with veganism, but the healthier side of veganism. You know. And yeah, I mean, well, we've always said that you know we really have to represent. You know, we can't be a bunch of like unhealthy pasty vegans like the stereotype because that stereotype is out there and we want to overturn that stereotype right yes definitely so you're moving to canada do you have plans to start a are you going to cook up there is do you have what's do you have a do you have a what's your life goal what, what besides, is my life goal besides marrying <laughs> some canadian dude <laughs> Well, so far as I can see it, I've been, I feel like I've been a student, you know, for my whole life, but since I um, left high school and I entered the college realm, I feel like I've been kind of educating myself um, with vegan cooking and baking, um, really have just entered the world of spirituality and figured out what that means to me. Um, I did a yoga teacher training. Um, I just did an herbal apprenticeship. My intuition is that that even though I've been doing so many different things over the past 20 years, that there is a connection, there is a, there is a relationship between all of these, and I want to create something out of my life's work that connects all of these things together. So I have, I have been thinking about workshops. I like the idea. I've never liked to... Um, you know, kind of work for somebody else and kind of be under the thumb of somebody else. So I like the idea of taking everything that I've learned, creating workshops, and be a, being able to go out and bring those workshops anywhere. Bring them, you know, if I'm in British Columbia, bring them to like the retreat centers in British Columbia, come back for a visit to the States, and maybe, you know, try to get into um, Kripalu or Omega um, and just bring bring the knowledge that I feel like I've been taking in as a student and kind of transforming into a teacher at this point. I feel like it's time time to take all that, bring all that knowledge together and start start going out and educating others. So we listened to Will Tuttle last night. How does, how do you feel, do you feel totally in resonance with everything? I loved that talk. I thought he brought it all together. He talked about, um, you know, the environmental impact, he talked about the nutritional impact on our bodies, about, you know, all, all the reasons why we should be vegan. And then he brought it into, I think, what is most close to his heart, it really, and what he's most passionate about is the spiritual connection and what, and, and what, does, what, does it, why, what does veganism have to do with spirituality? Spirituality is all around us, within us, but it's all about the awareness, I feel like, in getting activated into having an understanding of spirituality or divinity. And um, I feel like as, you know, as I was growing up, 
I was always, I just always had a very compassionate heart and was always drawn to helping people in need and kind of like, you know, helping the underdog. And I think, do you think that's kind of like our, our, um, our nature is to be compassionate and that we just, like Will Tuttle talked a lot about how, you know, we get our culture when we, when we come into our culture immediately before we have any say in the matter, we're started, they start feeding us, you know, our parents, the people who love us the most. Totally. They start feeding us meat and dairy products and create a matrix. Yeah, like a meat and, matrix. Indoctrinating us, so by the time we're even old enough to be consciously aware of what is going on, we're we're already deep in the in the ignorance, and you know we're already our lives are already full of this unseen, unspoken violence towards other beings. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I just saw a film um, called I Am, and have you have you heard about I Am? I know you gave it to everybody for Christmas. I, for me. I, didn't I think I'll hand it over to you because I doubt my parents are going to watch it. Um, but there was this uh, producer called Dave Shadiak, I think his name is, and he he directed like uh, Ace Ventura and The Nutty Professor. <laughs> had a lot of had a lot of fame, um, money, had everything that he wanted in the three D material world, and then ended up except for good taste. Is- and then, <laughs> for good days. I don't know those movies. <laughs> oh, I love Days Ventura. What are you yeah, talking I know, about? I know. I know. That I was like just alienated half our listeners. Went. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm Some like of the Jim Carrey stuff's just a little too over the top. Sure, but what? But it's not. But whatever. This is not Jim Carrey. This is the director I know, I know, of those yeah, films. This is just part of a story. This is part of a story. Exactly. I just have to interject my silliness. Come on, co-host. Let me talk here. Okay. <laughs> So, um, so, and then he had an accident that kind of brought him into a totally different place and he, you know, had that kind of life transition where he started to, you know, evaluate what he had in his life and that for all the money and all the properties and everything he had in the 3D world, he wasn't any happier. And so he started to investigate um, by going to... Um, interview spiritual leaders um, like Desmond Tutu and um, uh, there's a couple others I can't remember but just kind of like trying to trying to you know get the skinny from them of like what you know what are we all about like what really makes us happy and you know the the movie I am what it all came down to is love and that and that our our culture and like our people really are driven by love and compassion and by doing the right thing but there are these kind of like dark forces at work if you want to call it media or, or whoever has the power that kind of does this indoctrination with us as as we're young to try and make us believe that we are a competitive race that we are it is you know independent and everything for yourself and that's really not like when you really do the research and you and you look at you look at the biology of animals and how much they help each other and you start to like just really get into the research you see that we are based on love and that's what it is all about and that we are we are here to work with each other his message was one is one about about love and working together and that 
it is this indoctrination that we're kind of subjected to. And so then uh, that, that love and that connection and working together and that care and that compassion is, is covered over. Ooh. You know, as I was saying, I feel like I started out with this understanding of compassion and, and knowing that, that any group, whether it be animals or human beings, if, they, if they're being kept down or kept under, that it's hurting me just as much as it's hurting them. And so I just, I felt that drive to like always try and balance out and to bring up and just extreme love and compassion for any group that was being put down um, or discriminated against. And, and I feel like that's, so that started out, you know, when I was younger with being a feminist and I was really, I was all about like, okay, how can we bring women up so that they're not discriminated against? And then um, when you and I met, that love and that passion, um, you know, for basically balancing everything out and, and helping people to understand that we're all connected, that turned to animals and trying to educate other people and myself about, um, you know, all of the horrors that were, that were going on, you know, um, in factory farming. And now I feel... Like as I've gotten to this point and I, my trajectory has brought me to this place of divinity or spirituality. Not that divinity or spirituality wasn't all around. It's just that my awareness has kind of transitioned into that place and that that's become like my real focus and my passion, which I believe is like you, you live, basically I feel like I'm trying to live a life that activates other people. So I used to be, I feel like as a vegan, when I first came into veganism, I was very much about like kind of preaching to people and trying to like, oh, you, you know, don't you see what's going on and you have to switch over to veganism. And, and I was really, I felt kind of like very forceful. And now I feel like as I've come into connecting with what I call source or divinity, God, universe, whatever it is, I feel like I have the understanding that it's, it's it's like Gandhi. It's the life that you live. It's like you you live the most beautiful life, the most um, you know, just the most compassionate, loving life that you can, and do your work in the world. And people around you, people who are acquaintances, people who are friends, people who are strangers, they see that, and that's what transforms them. You know, and so I feel like it's my it's my awareness now or my connection with divinity um which is kind of activating other people or they see how i'm living and they're kind of like huh what's she doing like she's she's really happy or she's she's really she's really bright or there's like a lot of spirit coming out of her like what what's she doing and then when they come and they talk to me they find out i'm vegan and that i'm really you know trying to advocate like vital bringing in vital energy like green juices um and you know raw nut cheeses and things like that and also like i was saying body movement and yoga and and you know body awareness and things like that so that's i feel like that's my connection to spirituality at this point is just trying really trying to be a good person trying to like live from my heart get out of my head whenever i find myself in my head come back down to my heart 
you know, and live from that place. And of course, you know, what is part of that? It's, it is, it's looking at every being as a being of consciousness, which is something that you and I understood 20 years ago, you know, but now I'm bringing it kind of full circle into this like whole web of, yes, it's about, you know, understanding of nonviolence towards beings of consciousness and ourselves, you know, activating ourselves through this compassionate diet, you know, Buddhism. Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think there's, at least for me, you know, there's, there's something about us all, I think, human, human nature that, you know, we're fascinated by the unknown and the unseen, you know, and, and what is beyond this reality. And, and it might be just a fear of death that, that brings us on that path, or it might be just the wonder and love of being in this beautiful universe and world with all its mystery. So for me that, you know, that led me into wondering more about the mind and then, and about the spirit. But, you know, I came from very, you know, all the only spiritual path that most people I knew had ever been on was Christianity. So, um, and that worldview I felt was very limiting and not didn't appeal to my sense of mystery or any of that. It seemed very contrived to me. The world that I was given to believe was was true. Um, the more and more I lived in it, the more and more I realized that it was a bunch of bullshit, and that included the parts of the Christian religion that I had been exposed to, the eating of animals and that whole aspect I think our education system it, it just all like every every part of our culture that I encountered um, most of it offended my innate sensibilities I believe so so I had to find something for my because my my reaction as a teenager was like just to smoke pot and get drunk and act like an idiot because I, I don't, I didn't, I f didn't feel satisfied with what I was being presented. And I think <clears throat> over time I started to realize that there was these other paths, you know, and that I think that path led through from the psych psychology I became interested in. Maybe because, <laughs> maybe because while I was getting in trouble as a, <laughs> as a child, they, they sent me to the child psychologist. <laughs> they showed me these ink black pictures and said, what do you see? And I'm like, did they do the Rorschach test? Yeah, with you? I, really? I, I had that in high school. You know, I, I have a vivid memory of that. Like, what does this look what? like? <laughs> and what then, does and then this you know, you're like? like you're like thinking, okay, how do I? Because that, but the it was all authority figures. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna like. I don't think I probably honestly told them what I or you know maybe I thought well that looks like Satan eating a baby or something. <laughs> <laughs> But I kept I that said, to myself. Oh, it looks I was, like a butterfly. I was smart <laughs> enough to keep that one to myself. <laughs> so, but but that I think that that's probably that was my first contact with that, and I was like, okay, this is this is an interesting thing. How are, how's he like trying to figure out what's going on in my head by asking me what this picture, this weird like shape looks like? And so, 
so I think once that that little seed got planted and then you know that <clears throat> but immediately like my my path into that was Carl Jung you know and I, I think just because I met somebody that told me about him and then I was like okay so, and then there was all these archetypes and the um, mandalas and crazy dreams and those things were very interesting to me and then and when we met that's what you were you that's were where really I was and, and Buddhism you know I had already encountered Buddhism and also recently been like briefly introduced to yoga and and vegetarianism of course and all these things they felt really good to me this was like this was what my innate sensibilities were saying okay this stuff seems like it resonates with me and it's a way to navigate through the culture that doesn't resonate with me um, and so that's the path I started to take and, and veganism was always really just intertwined I think veganism I mean at veganism at its core is ahimsa you know the, the eastern um, philosophy of nonviolence, uh, and so I think the deeper I went with veganism the more I don't know if you have this probably you know you just feel like lighter and lighter as a being you know you've I feel like I was casting off some of the heaviness of my life mm -hmm. and that allowed me to become more happy and um, and even though at the beginning I was kind of an angry judgmental vegan that part kind of shed off pretty quickly I think and I started to realize that that wasn't going to be the way to change people. I never really felt comfortable out protesting and yelling at people. And, right. Um, I felt like, you know, I have all these creative gifts. There's got to be a way I can use them to change the world. Right, and that's that's what I'm talking about um, when you're saying, oh, you know, and at, like as, you know, you're vegan for a number of years and you start to, you know, you feel like you're casting things off and you feel lighter and lighter. And that's what I'm talking about, like, as, like, why, why we feel connected to yoga. You know, it's like, because all of those things, I feel like, are connected and help us to feel lighter and lighter. And, like, we're um, just coming in. If there's something about it to me where there's a connection. There's some kind of connection that by bringing yoga into our life, by bringing, like, green vital foods into our life it's like we're becoming we are becoming lighter we are becoming more activated we are becoming more compassionate and we're becoming more of an inspiration i feel like you know to like lead the path for others like into that place <laughs> <laughs> into the great unknown i do think there's something to i just think about even our story together and you know, we ca I do feel like we we came in this together almost 20 years ago. We kind of came in this came into this world together. I feel like I through through my relationship with you. I feel like I discovered, even though I had been trying to be vegan for a little bit, but but it really was this kind of, you know, it felt like to me um, we were in it together basically. And and through my relationship with you you know, really discovered spirituality, really discovered veganism and how to cook and um, yoga and all of those things. And I look at, I just look at our relationship and how, 
you know, we and we were together as a couple for almost eight years and now still remain good friends. And to me, it's like when Will Tuttle talks about, you know, consciousness, he's like, we are all consciousness. Everything is consciousness. Those animal beings are consciousness. We are all connected in this web. And for whatever reason, it really resonates with me where people find each other, like couples who find each other and come together and work together on, you know, spirituality and activism and veganism. It's like certain consciousnesses find each other and through many and evolve together and have a connection with each other. And that's how I, the people that I feel really comfortable with and my connection with, you know, animal beings, that's what it feels like. It feels like, like we are these vessels that hold this consciousness, but my relationship and my connection is feels like my consciousness inside of me is connecting with your consciousness, you know, and it's like, and, and your vessel that's sitting right here in front of me is just a vessel. Is that how you look at me? That's, uh, I do. Just a vessel. I, <laughs> just a vessel. With you in Canada. <laughs> well, that's... I don't know what's going to happen to me. I... <laughs> You've maintained yourself in New York City pretty well for a while. <laughs> oh, Lordy Lord. Well, we sure are going to miss you on the East Coast. Thank you. In the United States. It's a great tragic loss for many of us. But, um. <laughs> well, I'm, ho I'm, ho I'm hoping to connect, you know, with the, with the vegan scene and the spiritual scene in British Columbia, and I, which I think is pretty strong there. Ooh. I mean, how do you feel now you've become an, like a Jiva Mukti yoga teacher, you know? So it's like how, and Jiva Mukti yoga is, let's face it, pretty super cool. It's like this vegan, vegan path founded by David Life and Sharon Gannon with one of the main tenets is veganism. So, yes. right, you know, right there, that's, well, you know, ahimsa. Ahimsa. Yeah. Nonviolence. Ahimsa is, is actually the first, um, as you know, the first step on the path to yoga to being the eightfold path of <coughs> royal yoga raja yoga uh, suggested by Patanjali in the yoga sutras is ahimsa the first yama so it's very important it's the very first thing the very if if you want to become an enlightened being or in modern terms you could think if you want to find happiness in your life or if you want to evolve if you want to evolve spiritually um, the first step is to practice nonviolence, as Sharon Gannon, the co-founder, says. Um, if you still see others, then treat them with compassion until you don't see others anymore. And everywhere you look, you see yourself. We are, we are one. <laughs> yes, I. It's a, it's a journey. Still, I have you know becoming a Jiva Mukti teacher, doing that teacher training. It seems like just the very beginning of you know <clears throat> you know it gives you the certification and the I, I feel like the teacher training really just there's so much to yoga there's so much depth you know just in the scriptural part of yoga all the the philosophy of yoga and then there's all the all the geek stuff you know with anatomy and uh, <clears throat> learning sanskrit and things like that that you can do there's just so many parts of this path that is yoga and and becoming going through the teacher training the initial teacher training gives you a, a nice little healthy dose of each of those things but then then where do you take that from there 
um, you know, so teaching is, is just another step on the path of yogic practice. Um, because once you start teaching other people, that's when you really have to, that's where you find out where all your weak spots are, you know, mm -hmm. you're like, okay, because I'll, I'll get students that'll come up with an injury or something, and I'm like, what do I do? And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> what you know, do you do? You know, you want to practice ahimsa, you want to help them, but you also want to be careful that you don't give them advice that will increase their injury. <laughs> um, so that, that anatomy part is, is really intimidating to me and, and something that I'm working on a lot now. Um, and that doesn't really even have directly that much to do with the spiritual part of yoga. I mean, being a Jiva Mukti teacher gives me an incredible platform to to be able to talk to s people that I probably wouldn't encounter and otherwise, you know, and to be able to like plant little seeds about compassion and veganism. Um, so, <clears throat> and I think Sharon and David really understand that deeply, you know, that that it, yoga is an incredible I mean because it's built into the teachings of yoga the compassion ahimsa nonviolence um, and at this time yoga is becoming so popular so it's it's a really great vehicle to get that message out there to a lot of people um, who might otherwise try to avoid coming into contact with that message Ooh. to wrap this all up this uh -huh. is <laughs> this is the kind this is Christmas let's wrap it the, this is kind of the container that I like to put it in is like I like to use the matrix you know as kind of like a structure to talk with people about this and say did you like the matrix when it first came out I did. I did. You did? Not like how you liked it, like how you went to the theater four times to see it. <laughs> but I liked I, I liked the message. I was like, I didn't need to see it more than once. I was like, yeah, the message resonates with me, and I understand it. And that's how I, I view this world as if we are in the matrix. And instead of taking, you know, what was it, the red pill or the blue pill? It was the red pill. The red pill is the one that takes you down the rabbit hole. Okay. So instead of taking the red pill to activate us, we use these things to activate us instead, like like becoming vegan and, and, and understanding compassion towards all and healthy eating and bringing raw foods in and yoga. Those are all the things. That's the red pill. Those are, that's the red pill. Those are all the things, those are all the things that are activating us to really help us to understand what's really going on. It's like, and, and the people and, you know, the teachers and the gurus in our life, it's like everything is around us already. We are just using those things to actually wake up and to develop our awareness. Yeah. Shift our perception away from appearance into into the depth instead of seeing what we're told on TV what we're told in school we go deeper Any <laughs> 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 <me> more coffee <laughs> <laughs> listeners derelict has been cut off once again <laughs> the final his final cut off <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, well, we're sure going to miss you, Megzi. Uh, 
I hope it all works out for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I plan on, all I plan on doing is basically widening the circle and it's all in our perception, you know, and you can look at it like, oh, somebody's leaving, they're, they're moving away from the community, or you can look at it like we're just talking about. It's a big web, we're all connected, and all I'm doing by, you know, moving to British Columbia is widening the web. Well, some spiritual advice from my dad. Man plans. God, God laughs. <laughs> but I hope all your plans and dreams come true. <laughs> Thank you, Derelict. And um, so presenting the lecture of Will Tuttle at Veg Curious 2012 Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary. Amazing words. I hope they will resonate with you as they did with us. And... Um, <clears throat> and we probably won't be coming back on at the end of this. So it's just going to fade to black. Thank you, listeners. It's really great to be able to join in again. Maybe we'll Skype you in every once in a while. I would love to Skype in. Okay. Namaste. Namaste. Yes, I. All right. How's everybody doing here? You comfortable? I know these aren't the most comfortable seats in the world, but we'll... Uh, we won't go too long. As a vegan, I don't like to cause unnecessary suffering to sentient beings and keep you sitting in these chairs. <laughs> but at least we have uh, a nice temperature and this beautiful place. How many of you have been here before to the sanctuary? Is it really? Great. It's my first time. Has anyone read um, the World Peace Diet in here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, all right. Eight. Good. A few of you have. You know, um, it's just really so healing it seems to me to be giving a message like this while there's a cows here and chickens and turkeys and all these animals who are uh, the subject of such violence in our culture and to see that we human beings have the capacity to show love and compassion and actually dedicate our lives to the welfare of other living beings rather than to making money off of them or not caring about them and so I'd like to talk about the how the the power of food and also the ramifications of our food choices because I think this is the most important thing that we can be discussing today in our culture and uh, the good news is that as we become more aware of the ramifications of our food choices and just see what happens when we eat animal foods and when we eat plant-based foods uh, we can transform our world we can not only transform as Jasmine was just saying about her own health uh, I think it goes much deeper than that. We can transform the society that we're living in and the way we're uh, violating each other and the planet and ecosystems and so forth. It doesn't have to happen. So uh, how many of you have spent some time looking behind the curtain of our culture's food system? What's really going on behind the curtain? Some of you? Yeah, a few. It's not a very pretty sight, and uh, it's a lot of devastation. The basic idea, uh, you know, the, the sort of un... Uh, yielding fact is that we are killing every single day in the United States, just in, in this one country here, 75 million animals for food. This is an industrial killing machine that's going on relentlessly and routinely, and 75 million animals, just like these, with, with personalities, with, with uh, interests, animals, who, you know, pigs and cows and chickens and turkeys and ducks and geese and these animals and fish. These are all animals who are sentient beings and who uh, yearn to fulfill their purposes in their lives, 
and we have this massive killing machine going on. And the good news is that it's not happening uh, just sort of by a government decree or something. It's only happening because we, the people, are taking out our wallets and saying, yes, I want meat, I want dairy products, I want eggs. And so when we realize that and stop that and see the, the advantages of that, we can transform our world. So the, what the World Peace Diet is about essentially, and what I'd like to talk about here this morning, is that if we understand the ramifications of our food choices, the reverberations, and when, we, when I take out my wallet and pay for animal foods, a lot happens. And the ramifications reach into every nook and cranny of our Earth, in this, in the outer world, this beautiful planet, and into every nook and cranny of our inner life and of our culture. So um, I'd like to, you know, maybe just talk briefly about what it does to the earth. It, it's a, it would be a whole hour-long lecture, you know, to easily give. But basically, meat production and dairy and egg production is by far the worst thing happening to our earth. Uh, yeah. You, we live in an, we've been living 17 years in an RV solar, with solar panels on the roof, traveling around, giving concerts and lectures and art exhibits. These, by the way, are Madeline's paintings behind me. She's now been a vegan for uh, many, many years. And um, I think besides me speaking, and we see these beautiful pictures of animals, we can remember that uh, the animals are also, I think, speaking to us if we will listen. Uh, but but we, basically what we see all over North America is vast fields of monocropped, genetically engineered corn and soybeans, which are grown not to feed humans, basically, but to feed animals. You don't usually see the animals. They're hyper-confined in these stinking sheds by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, pigs and cows and other animals, and, 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 and actually factory-farmed fish to eat a huge amount of grain. And so... Uh, this is devastating to the environment. This, the runoff from all of the pesticides and herbicides and fungicides on all these fields go into the water, end up in the oceans, cause eutrophication of the, of the water, algae blooms. Uh, the sewage, they, convert, they convert all this grain into four things, essentially, which is sewage, um, massive amounts of sewage. One large pig operation will have more sewage than the entire New York City. You can, and it's, it's more toxic and it's unregulated. It's just, they just basically do what they want with it. It ends up in the water and aquifers and other places. So we see uh, an, a massive uh, devastation. The other three things that they convert uh, the grain and legumes into are saturated fat, cholesterol, and acidifying animal protein. So that's basically the situation. Um, but the oceans are being overfished phenomenally just beyond – I mean, since 1985, every year we have a higher capacity of, of fishing. The world fishing fleet has greater capacity to catch more fish. And every year since 1985, we've caught less fish because there's no fish left in the ocean com comparatively. Uh, we've fished them out. So now two-thirds of the fish we're eating in the United States are factory farmed. And I've seen these places. I mean, you go, you know, we've traveled, we've, you know, we've gone to slaughterhouses and factory farms and stockyards and factory fish operations. These, these huge swimming pools, basically, gigantic pools, looking into them, they're just full of black water. I remember thinking, well, there's nothing here, just black water. And then as I kept looking, I realized that actually <laughs> the water was packed with fish. They were just packed, and they could hardly move in there. And the water was black because the, it was filled with, with their feces. And the workers were dumping in antibiotics and chemicals and things, trying to keep the fish alive long enough so they could pull them out of the water and electrocute them and eviscerate them. And people think we're brainwashed with these official stories that somehow this is healthy. You know, we need our omega-3s. And we don't realize that fish are concentrating the toxins in the water hundreds of thousands or even millions of times more in their flesh. So wild-caught fish or factory farm fish 
concentrate a lot of toxins. It's environmentally devastating. We're cutting down basically an acre per second of Amazonian rainforest. Uh, the driving for, uh, uh, forest behind that is to cut down the, um, the forest in order to grow soybeans to feed factory farm cows and pigs and fish and other animals. And um, so this is causing the loss of genetic diversity. We're right now in the middle of the largest mass extinction of species in 65 million years, driven by humans eating meat and dairy products and eggs. When you cut down an acre of Amazonian rainforest, you're not just cutting down some trees. You're cutting down, destroying whole networks and communities of life that took millions of years to evolve. And we're just destroying these, and it's actually... Um, they just liberalized the laws, and it's actually going up to about an acre and a half per second. So this is something we have to just understand. If we just realize that also the, the other thing is it's the um, driving force behind what we refer to as global climate change, global warming, global climate breakdown. These cows convert all this grain and other animals uh, not just into saturated fat and cholesterol and sewage, but also into huge amounts of nitrous oxide and methane, which are causing, who knows, lots of problems climactically. So when we realize this, we see that it takes a massive amount of water. According to the United Nations, it's 30 times as much water to feed someone eating the standard American diet as someone eating uh, a vegan diet. You know, so if we want to just live responsibly and reduce our environmental footprint, there's nothing more powerful a human being can do today in our culture than to move toward a, plant, a plant-based diet, a vegan diet. It's the greatest thing we can do environmentally. So if we understand the environmental devastation by eating animal foods – and the, and the devastation to really future generations of all living beings and to ecosystems, but then also look into what does it do to our culture because I think this is important to understand. You know, we live in a culture where we're killing 75 million animals a day. Somebody has to do that work. And, um, also, and so well, there's two things. One is the fact that this is also – you know, the basic message here is that what I'm s- saying is positive. You know, it sounds negative. I'm talking like, oh, how bad it is. <laughs> but really, that's what's happening. I mean, that's, that's a lot of that's covered over. But the positive thing here is that we live on this beautiful earth that can support all of us. For example, we're growing enough food right now. We're growing enough grain, basically, and legumes to feed between 12 and 15 billion people. You know, that should be a headline, I think, every day. This is such good news because – we, should, we are experiencing abundance. There's no reason anyone should be going hungry. We're growing enough food to feed everybody twice as much food as they could possibly eat. The problem is we're feeding most of the grain to animals who are then are stabbed and killed, and they're very inefficient at converting the grain and uh, create massive amounts of waste and, and environmental devastation. And so we have a situation where there's basically out of 7 billion people, 1 billion of us, are chronically starving and malnourished and hungry. We're losing forty to 50,000 children every day to starvation. How could this be possible, really? I mean, how could it be possible that we could be growing enough food to feed everybody twice as much as they could eat, and we have a billion of our brothers and sisters starving, while at the other end of the, of the bell curve, the rich billion, are suffering also from the diseases of converting massive amounts of grain into saturated fat and cholesterol. So, you know, I don't have to tell you, but basically... Uh, in the industrialized countries of the world, uh, we are suffering from the diseases of these kinds of diseases, obesity, diabetes, osteoporosis, arthritis, kidney disease, liver disease, heart disease, strokes, many forms of cancer, autoimmune diseases, all these diseases that are just bringing in huge profits for the uh, military, industrial, meat, medical, pharmaceutical, media complex. You know, they, they uh, actually um, are, you know, are not necessary. But the thing is, 
those of us living in these cultures are able to, to bid up the price of grain on the world markets very easily to feed our factory farm pigs and cows and chickens and fish. They are not going hungry. They have plenty to eat. They're getting fattened up very well. But we raise, up, raise the price of grain on the world markets, and these people over here on the le- in the less industrialized countries just starve. They cannot afford. This is the driving force behind conflict and war on this planet, is the people eating high off the hog and destroying everything, stealing everything, taking everything, while other people just don't have enough. So that's one aspect of, of the devastation culturally of eating animal foods, but there's a really a lot more to it. For example, we have um, – I think it's important to, be, to realize that the workers who have to do the work of, br- of bringing the, the flesh and dairy products and eggs into the stores and into the restaurants, um, these workers have the highest rates of worker-related injuries. They have the highest rates of suicide, of drug addiction, of alcoholism and spousal abuse and child abuse because they're doing work that brings out the worst in them. You know, they have to go to jobs where they just stab animals all day and where they just cut the flesh from the bone. And so they are very harmed by this. And they go back into their homes and families and neighborhoods and commit horrible violence all the time. This is what's go- This is basically what we want. If I want to take out my wallet and pay for for meat or dairy products or eggs, I have to pay someone somewhere to electroshock and mutilate and confine and, and kill animals. And there's repercussions for that. You know, Martin Luther King, I think in his wisdom, talked about this. He said, we are, he said, violence anywhere hurts everyone everywhere because we're all interconnected. And, you know, and what the vegan movement is about, what our teachings are about is the, the also that. It's basically compassion and kindness and mercy Anywhere blesses everyone everywhere because we're all interconnected. Each one of us makes a huge difference in how we live our lives, the choices that we make. And as we wake up and see that we are – that our food has a huge impact on other human beings and on animals and future generations and ecosystems and all of – and on ourselves and our loved ones – we can actually do the most powerful thing any human being can do on this planet today, which is to question the official stories you know, that we have to have meat and we have to have uh, dairy to get enough protein and calcium and all these things, and to bring our lives into alignment with our own values. And this is the greatest – I think this is the most liberating thing for others and also for ourselves. So I'd like to talk a little bit these – are, these are some of the outer ramifications – um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the inner ramifications because the basic idea is if we have a situation where we have a culture like we do where we're killing 75 million animals every day for food, we have to basically indoctrinate everyone who's born into that culture to do that. We have to plant in them. We have to inject into them from infancy a program. And this is the thing that I think we have to really look more deeply at. And um, if we don't, our, our understanding of this whole thing is relatively shallow. But once we understand this part of it, we see that we, all of us, have been injected with a program that is not in our best interest. When we leave here and we go out and we see people eating meat and dairy products and eggs, we have to be aware that everyone who does that is only doing it for one reason. They're doing it because they're following orders. They're just doing what they've been told to do since they came out of the womb. You know, they got – most people don't even actually, unfortunately, get their mother's breast anymore. They start getting milk from a cow, and then they start getting meat. And if you just go to any um, grocery store and look in the baby food section, you'll see little jars of, of, uh, of, sta- of, of beef and chicken and turkey and cheese and all these things. So we get these foods. And so I think it's important to realize – that 
the only reason anyone eats meat and dairy products and eggs is because of the community that we're born into. We, we want to fit into the community. This is a great saying by Krishnamurti. He said, um, <laughs> he said, it is not a good idea to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. You know, and you got to understand that it's not a good idea to be well-adjusted to a sick society. We all want to be well-adjusted. We want to grow up. We want to get along with everybody. We want everybody to like us. We want to go to the company barbecue and eat what everybody's eating. We want to go to the church fish fry and just, yeah, yeah, it's great. And everybody, you know, but as we begin to awaken and realize what's going on, we begin to realize it's not a good idea necessarily to be well-adjusted to this pattern of eating. In my own life, I remember... <laughs> You know, I was born and raised in Concord, Massachusetts back in the 50s, and I, we ate the usual meals, huge amounts of meat, dairy products, and eggs. And I remember when I was about seven years old, I said to my mother, so, Mom, the kind of food we're eating, is this what everybody eats? And my mother said, yeah, everybody eats this, yep. And I said, okay, thanks. And then uh, I, she came back a few minutes later, and she said, well, there are vegetarians I'd never heard that word before. But she said it to me. I knew when she said it, they live on another planet. You know, this, you'll never meet one. They're hypothetical people. They don't actually exist because where would they get their protein? I mean, it's just – that was the end. My mother was totally right. That was the end of it. I never heard another word about it. And I remember going off – I was about 13 years old. And my parents sent me off to the summer camp in Vermont. And it was affiliated with this beautiful dairy and just sort of nestled in the green mountains of Vermont. And um, uh, we would go down to this, this farm and do things, you know. And one day we went down, and they told us to catch a chicken. I remember catching my chicken, and, and they showed us how to put her down on this uh, board with two nails in it, put her neck through the nails, have my little axe, and just cut her head off. And then she'd run around, and then when she stopped bleeding, we'd pick her up and put her through the skull tank and eat the chickens. And it didn't bother me in the slightest. I mean, I knew it was the right thing to do. I'd gone through 13 years of the most intense indoctrination a human being can go through. You know, three meals a day. I knew in, the, in my bones that God put these animals here for us to eat. They don't have a soul. And if you do not eat them, you will die within 24 hours of a protein deficiency. You know, that's it. End of story. You don't have to ask any questions. This is what God and Jesus and everybody wants us to do. So, uh, so it didn't bother me. And even about maybe two or three weeks later, we went down again, and we gathered around a cow in the barn, and he, she wasn't giving enough milk anymore. And so we had a gun and like, point-blank range right there, and we just pulled the trigger and took three bullets, and she finally crashed on the floor of the barn. And I remember being shocked just by the sheer volume of urine and feces that came pouring out as she was convulsing on the floor. And then the guy jumped across her body and with this long knife went whoom and cut her head like right off. And, the, and her heart was still bleeding, beating. So she, the blood went like, like way up in the air, just in these big spurts. And, um, and he wiped his brow very calmly and matter-of-factly. And he said, you've got to do that. You've got to cut those arteries immediately. Otherwise, the flesh will be soggy. And if, and if the flesh is soggy, no one will eat it. And so I realized, my gosh, you know, here we are. We think we're carnivores, but we don't want to have soggy flesh. And I've realized in the 30 years of research I've done into animal agriculture since then that that is the reason animals suffer so much in slaughterhouses, all of them. You know, because you can't just kill an animal somehow, come back, you know, an hour later and cut, her, cut them up. Um, because it would be soggy. No one would eat it. It would be terrible. So all the animals have to die by bleeding to death. So you hang them upside down by one leg, all of them, pigs, cows, chickens, fi not fish, but turkeys. All these animals are hanging upside down, and then they're 
they're they're cut here and then they die by bleeding. So their their heart will bl- actively uh, pump the blood out of their flesh. And so I saw all that, but I couldn't begin to question it really. And even the following year, when I went back to this farm and uh, we wanted to bring this cow, the, the cow that we were going to do that year, to a, you know away from the barn because it made such a mess on the floor, and we tried to pull her. And this is another thing, you know, I realized they don't want to, they don't cooperate. They don't want to be killed. She was resisting. We had 30 kids on a rope, and we couldn't move her. So we just did what we've been doing. You know, since we started herding animals uh, eight to 10,000 years ago, we simply overwhelmed her with superior force. We tied a chain around her neck. We put it to the back of a four-wheel drive pickup truck, and we just pulled her. And she was, like, getting pulled along. And we, I was riding in the back of the truck myself, and I just was shocked at one point because we got almost up there and sh- she broke the chain. She snapped it. And I fell out of the truck. <laughs> we all kind of, the truck lurched forward. Everybody kind of fell down. And I saw this cow looking up at us with this chain hanging off of her neck. And I, she wasn't saying anything, but I heard very clearly what she was saying, which is, please don't kill me. I don't want to be killed. And, but I knew we had to. I knew, you know, you use them for milk money. And then when that runs out, you use them for meat money. That's the part. That's what God wants. That's what we do. And so even though I kind of wi- I wished that we didn't have to, I knew it was the right thing to do. And uh, so I went, <coughs> ended up going away to college in Maine in the early 70s. And I heard that there were a few vegetarians on campus, but I never met one. But I heard that there actually were a few there. And uh, after college was over in 75, my brother and I decided to leave home and head to California. And so we walked. We, did, we were meditating. We were just going on a spiritual pilgrimage. After going for about a month and a half, we got as far as Buffalo. <laughs> and it was October. It was Buffalo. It was, like, getting cold. And I, and I thought, well, I've got a bachelor's degree from a very good school. I can figure this out. We better head south. So we walked south, and we, we went about 15 or 20 miles a day just walking down through upstate New York, Pennsylvania, into West Virginia, through the Bible Belt, into Kentucky, into Tennessee. We ended up, by the end of the year, in Tennessee at a place called The Farm. The farm in 1975 was the largest hippie commune in the world. There was a, uh, a thousand people, and they were eating a totally plant-based diet. They called it vegetarian. No one heard of the word vegan in 1975, but it was vegan. They no meat, dairy products, or eggs. And there they were. They were not dying of a protein deficiency. A thousand, about 200 children, a lot of them vegan from birth, were thriving. I said, "Why are you guys doing this? What's the what's the thing?" You know, I. I and they said, "Well, it's two things. Number one." Um, do you know that people are starving and a lot of it's because people are eating meat and we're feeding the grain to animals while people go hungry? That's not fair. I said, well, okay, yeah. And then they said, well, and you know what they do to the animals that, you're, that people eat? And I was like, well, don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> That's the usual thing. But they told me like in one minute, I remember this guy saying, well, look, just they, they castrate them without anesthesia. They cut their beaks off. They notch their ears. They cut their tails. They mutilate. And I, and I was like, oh, no. And then they told me how they just steal the babies and how they confine them in horrible hyper-confinement in these stinking sheds where the ammonia is so thick they can't even hardly breathe. And I just looked into this vision of millions upon millions of animals being the most cruel, violent, horrible conditions possible. And that was it. I never ate meat again in my life since 1975. I mean, it was so obvious that who would ever do that? Who, I mean, once you know, you can't, you know, I mean, not, I mean, just to actually eat that even. I mean, not just, I mean, we don't, like if you see roadkill, you don't think, oh, I'm going to go up and eat that. But, you know, to see what we're doing to these animals and then to actually eat it, I mean, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to cause it for sure. But anyway, it was kind of neat to realize later 
when I met Madeline, that that basically that same month and year, maybe even the same day, I'm not sure, she also never ate meat again. She became a vegetarian in Switzerland. But um, but anyway, so eventually um, uh, I got to California, and a few years later, in 1980, I, I made the connection with dairy products and eggs, and the violence there. So I became a vegan in 1980, and then a few years later went to um, Korea. And when I was in Korea, I, I went there as a Zen monk, shaved my head, put on robes, and was just meditating every day from 3 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night, an intensive meditation retreat there that went on for many months. And so as I was uh, – but what, what I realized while I was there uh, is that this was a community that had been practicing what we would call veganism, a vegan lifestyle – uh, for over 650 years, you know, since the 1200s, something like that. And so no meat, no dairy, no eggs, no wool, no silk, no leather. You wouldn't even kill a mosquito. You, know, you kind of like take her outside and let her go, that kind of thing. It was really to practice uh, compassion and mercy and tenderness because we were doing so much meditation and sitting uh, that the mind gets very quiet, actually, and we begin to become aware of the ramifications of our lives. And I think... When that happens, you know, what I realized, uh, and I had been you know, meditating for many years just to be able to be allowed to go into that monastery, but um, what I really realized, and I think this is you know, the fundamental thing we have to some, somehow understand, is that what we all are, all of us, is consciousness, eternal and liberal, liberated and free and creative and wise and compassionate consciousness. We manifest through a physical vehicle for a little while, but we are eternal consciousness, and we are born into a culture, however, that injects this very toxic program into us very early on by forcing us to eat the flesh and secretions of brutalized animals where we shut down. We disconnect from our intuition, our wisdom, our compassion, and we are willing to become cogs in a machine of violence and try to get the rewards of that machine, try to get some money, try to get some prestige, try to get something and go along. What we real, but, but I think the greatest thing we can do, in a way, is to somehow extricate our consciousness out of that conditioning and realize this is what we are and then live a life of love, live a life of kindness and mercy to others because this is re- what real health is. Real health is actually seeing the beauty within ourselves and others and celebrating that not just in words, but in actions. And when that happens, we become a force for the healing of our world. And I think there's no greater thing we can do than to make an effort to understand the programming that we've all gone through. So when I was in Korea, I remember coming back here, and I really felt like I had these vegan roots that went just right into my, the core of my heart. And I, and I was after getting my PhD and teaching college for quite a few years, uh, we started, Madeline and I started traveling, and I remember saying, you know, someone... I think he's going to write a book that'll give a uh, it'll talk about the big picture of our culture's mistreatment of animals for food because there's been books that talk about it's not good for your health and there's books that talk about it's not good for the animals and all the violence and books that it's not good for the environment but I realized through the research I did at Berkeley and all these courses in education and anthropology and sociology and psychology and the, all the uh, comparative religion and so forth that the picture is way bigger than that I mean, if you look at the spiritual, psychological, social, anthropological, and historical dimensions of our treatment of animals for food, you realize that it's huge. And, one, and so I said, it's going to be great to read that book. I, I'm sure someone's going to write it here pretty soon, and I'll sit back and just read it. Yeah, it'll be great. And the years went by, and the book never came. And finally, Madeline said, well, I think if you want to read that book, you'll probably have to write it yourself. <laughs> 
I didn't feel like writing a book. But I spent five years writing the World Peace Diet and finally came out. And uh, so basically, you know, the, the basic thing is what I've just been saying Okay, about the outer ramifications, but then to look at the inner ramifications. So I just want to talk about that briefly here because I think this is where we can really see the, um, the, the bigger picture. So in order to, to be killing 75 million animals every day for food, we have to be, all of us, injected with a certain mentality. And it has, I would say, maybe five main attributes. One is, the, the main one in a sense, is it's a mentality of reductionism. In other words, the, the subtext of every meal that we're eating as little kids and, and, and as adults, too, is that certain beings are not beings. They are things. We learn to see a being as a commodity, as just a thing. Uh, you know, we don't see pigs, for example, as these sacred beings with emotions and feelings that we should really protect and love. We see them and we sell them as pork bellies on the Chicago, you know, whatever it is. They're just, they're just things. We just sell them for money. We eat them like they're things. And so this, this is a very powerful program that gets injected into all of us to look with eyes that see things. And we turn – one of the things I realized is whatever we do to animals, we end up doing to each other. You know? And so we, be, we turn each other into commodities. We even turn ourselves into a commodity. So that's number one. Number two is it's essentially a mentality of exclusion. We learn early on to exclude certain beings from the sphere of our kindness and compassion. We just don't care about certain beings. We don't care about them. And again, we, are, we practice whatever we practice. There's this old saying in uh, German, Übung macht den Meister, which means practice makes the master. So we practice this with every meal, and we become very good at excluding. There's also, um, uh, number three, it's a mentality of privilege and elitism. Because, again, the subtext of every meal is that certain beings are inherently superior to other beings. Those who are superior can use those who are inferior however they want, that their interests don't matter. And so we have sociologists saying, and all of us know this, really, I think, for sure, that one of the most serious problems in our culture today is the vast inequality that we have between those who are super rich and those who are barely getting by and this, you know, this massive inequality and the privilege and elitism and racism and so forth. And yet, what is every meal? Every meal is a, basically an affirmation of that. That's the subject. That's the real teaching that's going on, that superior ones use inferior ones. Might makes right. Domination, oppression, exploitation, that's good. That's how we live. That's what we eat. And one of the things I realized that I should have mentioned earlier maybe is that anthropologists understand that food is our most powerful social program. Eating meals is the most powerful social ritual that there is. If you want to understand any culture, you go to that culture and look at their meals. And looking deeply into the meals, you'll look deeply into everything about that culture. Because in their meals, number one, that's the main way that any culture passes their norms and values and mores from generation to generation. And, look, and the meals are uh, – looking into the meals is looking into the way we relate to nature and animals and each other and God and everything. So when we understand our meals – we begin to see that food is enormously powerful and food rituals really fundamentally determine how we see reality. And so the, the, this program of exclusion, um, of commodification of life, of privilege and elitism, also of predation, you know, the subtext of every meal is that we're predators. You know, we create these predatory capitalist systems where we're dominating and competing and trying to get more and we can see it, it comes right out of this underlying thing. It's also uh, essentially a mentality of disconnectedness because we, again, learn not to really know what's going on. We practice 
being just connected. My mother, bless her heart, she never said what we're having. For, she said we're having. Well, she she said we're having bacon this morning. You know, she didn't say. Well, this morning we're having the flesh of an animal who was confined in a small uh, little pen her whole life and then stabbed and was terrified. I was like, no, I don't want to have that. I don't want to eat that. <laughs> now we don't know what it is. We learn as a whole culture to just dis- disconnect, and when we disconnect from the most intimate, powerful thing we're doing, we in- we disconnect everywhere essentially. You know, and I remember my, myself. I was the older brother. I was the oldest child. My little sister, when she came along, um, she was sitting in her high chair, and my mother said, well, you can feed your little sister. And I said, okay, I'll try to do a good job here. And my mother cut up all the food, and it was on a plate, and there was a little tiny fork, and I would give her the veggies, and I'd give her the different... And then my mother would always say, now, make sure she eats her protein. And so I'd take the protein, you know, the little pieces of meat, and I'd put it in her mouth, and she'd always go... I'd say, you got to get your protein. I make it like an airplane to make it fun, you know. She'd spit it out every time. Pretty much I was just jamming it down her throat. You've got to get your protein. Come on. you got to eat this. You, you won't, you'll die without this. You've got to eat this. It's the most important thing. And I'm so glad to say that my sister, um, who is now a grandmother, <laughs> um, is a vegan. Yay. And my mother's a vegan too. So ah, everybody's happy. <laughs> I wouldn't want to have that karma really for forcing my sister to eat meat, and then what did they do? Oh, man. But anyway, so, um, so it's, yeah, my, our family's all vegan, finally. <laughs> they read my book, so <laughs> gets them every time. But um, um, so the, the thing to understand here, essentially, is that we have, we've all been injected with this program that is not in our best interest. Remember in the movie The Matrix, Neo, in the be- at some point in the, sort of towards the beginning, it's this, like this, they stick this thing into him. That's what happened to all of us. You know, it's injected into us. And the greatest gift we can give ourselves or to our friends is to get that out, that program of eating meat and dairy. It, it's really so toxic to our health on every level. There's five levels of health, right? There's our physical health. That's what most of us think of. But we've got to think of our psychological health, our spiritual health, our cultural health, and the health of the environment that we're living in. If those aren't healthy, it's not physical health doesn't mean a heck of a lot. And so we have to understand, I think, um, the power uh, of our food choices and how this determines the, the mentality that's in, that is in our food choices is not in our best interest. And once we begin to see that, that we can be healthy, in fact, even healthier, eating a plant-based diet physically and on every other level, then we begin to see uh, what is ours to do. I remember as I was teaching um, comparative religion that if you just basically – distilled the essential spiritual teaching of all the world's religions down into one um, sentence. It would be something like, whatever you most want for yourself, give that to others. Whatever we most want for ourselves, to give that to others. This is called, as you sow, so shall you reap, the golden rule also. And when I was in, in uh, Korea, you know, this idea of eating uh, a plant-based diet was based on the ancient teaching of ahimsa. Has, has anyone heard of that word, ahimsa? Ahimsa means nonviolence. The basic teaching in all religions, really, that when we are violent towards others, in other words, if I'm harming another for my benefit, I'm going to manipulate them, lie to them, steal from them, hit them, hurt them to get something, whatever it is, you know, abuse them, use them. We always hurt ourselves more than we ever hurt them. Because when we harm another for our own benefit, we essentially contract our consciousness and we create a world 
of competition and violence, and it's, it's going to be a struggle, folks. And people say, yeah, world peace would be very difficult to attain. Yeah, if, you're gonna, if you want to eat steak and eggnog, it's going to be very difficult to attain. But it would not be difficult to attain if, when we move toward compassion. For, when we, if imagining our culture as a vegan culture is imagining a culture where peace and freedom and harmony and justice and equality are actually possible. If we do not move toward a vegan culture, they are not possible because we must give what we want to have for ourselves. This is the feminine wisdom, the fifth attribute that uh, I, would, I would give here uh, of, the, of the mentality that's injected into all of us besides commodification or reductionism and exclusion and so forth is the domination and suppression, really, of the sacred feminine. That's the thing. You know, female animals, from the very beginning of men herding animals, which only has been going on for about 10,000 years, it was about dominating female animals, and not just female animals, dominating their uteruses and their mammary glands with an iron fist. And in order for us to do that, we had to suppress our own inner feminine wisdom, which I refer to in the World Peace Diet as Sophia. Sophia is the feminine wisdom that we all, is within all of us. But when you, when you feed little kids meat, dairy products, and eggs, you are basically destroying, not destroying, but you're suppressing Sophia. And I think what the, what the whole vegan movement is, essentially, is the resurrection of Sophia. It's a resurrection of that feminine wisdom that yearns to protect life. You know, when you have a mother and a little baby is born, she's going to protect that baby. That's a natural wisdom of compassion and love. And we all have that. When we see our earth being, you know, forest being cut down, we want to stop that. When we see the oceans being destroyed, when we see animals being harmed and attacked, all of us, men or women, have a Sophia wisdom that will say no. But we are, when we eat meat and dairy, we can create a culture that's destroying rainforests, killing 75 million animals a day, allowing corporations to invade the consciousness of our little kids with violence and pornography to market to them as consumers. We just let all this happen because Sophia is repressed. So... What it's really about is coming to our senses, really, coming to our inner wisdom and awakening to the natural truth that is within us. And, and most people look at veganism as always saying no, right? <laughs> I mean, people say, oh, God, you guys aren't much fun. You say, no, you won't eat ice cream and you won't eat this and you won't eat that and you won't go to the rodeo or the circus or the zoo. And you won't wear wool or leather. You won't do this. You won't. It's like, no, 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 no. And, and yet what I've discovered is um, – all those no's are actually a gigantic yes. It's really about saying yes. It's saying yes to kindness and compassion and taking responsibility for the ramifications of our own choices. And the compassion that we show to others and the love we show to others through this, it always comes back. I mean, it really comes back. And um, we have the foundation. When we move to a plant-based diet, we have the foundation for true health and peace and joy in our lives. The problem I have in a talk like this is that I never have enough time. So I'm not sure how much more time. How much more time do I have, actually, because I have a lot more to say, but I'm not sure how much. Can I have another 10 minutes? Or Okay, I'll go a little longer. Um, I'll go. All right. So basically, um, the thing is, you know, the World Peace Diet is a – audio book. I read the whole thing rather quickly, and it's 13 and a half hours long. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so in 45 minutes or an hour here. Um, 
the what I've been talking about so far is sort of the beginning part of the book. There's a whole chapter that goes into the history of this, which I think I'd love to just say a little bit about it because it's so important. But basically, just to understand that this is something relatively new. People started for the very first time owning animals as property for food. We call it herding animals in what is today Iraq. And it changed everything. It was the last revolution I think we ever experienced in our culture. And it was a revolution of reductionism, of reducing beings to commodities, and it took a long time. It took thousands of years, but gradually we began to to own animals as property for food. We began to see women who also had been respected because when we when we started owning the animals, they were reduced from being mysterious and powerful and respected cohabitants of the earth with us to being mere property, and they became despised. And women also, unfortunately, by the time the historic period emerged, which was about 3,000 years ago, I used to teach college cl- classes in these in these books, the ancient um, Epic of Gilgamesh and the Iliad and the Odyssey and the old uh, ancient Greek tragedies and, and so forth, um, you can see it very clearly. The women are bought and sold like chattel property. Uh, they have been now seen by men as mere breeders, like they see their, their chickens and, and their cows and their sheep and their goats. And um, the first science is now established, which is men dominating female animals to get more babies and more wool and more milk and so forth. We have uh, a wealthy elite, which is now established. They own. They are the, the first cap, proto-capitalists. Capital means head, as in head of sheep and goats and cows. They own the wealth. They control a society, this tiny elite. They invent two new institutions, which are very powerful and are still going on. One is war. The very first word for war is the ancient Sanskrit word gavya. It means the desire for more cows. And so they, they learn if they want to get more wealth, get more cows, because cows and sheep and goats were wealth, they would attack in a mass attack, a first war. Another guy who owned a lot of cows, and if they won, they'd get to steal all those cows. And then the second institution they invented is slavery. When you enslave animals, it's a very small step to enslaving other human beings. Men were castrated like they did the male animals. Females became the concubines to make more slaves. And we had a very violent culture that emerged and was very warlike and bellicose, and it spread throughout the Mediterranean, up into Europe, up into, you know, into Asia, and to here. And it's basically still spreading to this day through governmental programs, through large corporations like Monsanto and Burger King and Cargill and... Um, ConAgra and Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I call that, again, the military-industrial-meat-medical-pharmaceutical-media complex, this vast complex. And essentially, we're born into that culture, and that culture does not have a chance, really, to survive because the, um, the technology we have can easily destroy the planet. So what our calling is, I think, is realizing we're born into this culture is to transform our culture, to help our culture to evolve to the place where we can actually have a future and that this is the greatest calling we can have is to understand this, to make an effort to understand the ramifications of our food choices, to bring our lives into alignment with that. I have a whole chapter in the World Peace Diet called uh, The Intelligence of Human Physiology, which is basically what are we designed to eat? If you look at our teeth, our jaw, our saliva, our digestive system, our uh, circulatory system, you know, all these things, we see really that all of us human beings have been given the gift of a physical body that does not require any animal to suffer to give us the nutrition and the nutrients that we need to thrive. And yet we're all born into a culture that teaches us and forces us, really, to take that gift we've been given and throw it back in the face of the benevolent creator and say, well, we're going to stab and kill animals anyway. And when we do that, we create essentially the foundation of the suffering that we have. 
There's also something I, I just briefly mentioned here, kind of <clears throat> wrapping up. The, um, the basic thing that if you understand this principle of as you sow, so shall you reap, we don't seem to realize basically that all of the problems and dilemmas and uh, issues and crises that we have as human beings that we cannot seem to solve, that we read about in the media, we are actively inflicting on animals for food. And it's coming back. It's, you know, we're sowing the seeds and it's coming back. And, no, and we're trying to solve it in all these ways without realizing, without seeing. There's no conversation about this. I mean, I think, really, the World Peace Diet is the only place that this is actually talked about because it, it's, I would think if we came from outer space, it would be obvious. But since we're born into it, it's hard to see. But basically, look at the physical diseases that we have. We're inflicting them, pretty much all of them, on animals. Obesity is this huge epidemic. What are we doing to animals for food? We have our, our you know, whole armies of scientists working day and night to try to figure out ways to fatten up animals faster and faster. You know, we have it now down to like 39 days to fatten up chickens from the time they come out of an egg. And so all the animals we're eating are obese. We have special techniques of lighting and confinement and food and everything to fatten them up very fast. So we sow obesity in millions and we reap it in ourselves and we wonder why we can't solve the problem. Same thing with osteoporosis. You know, dairy cows, for example, and hens, especially for for eggs, they're forced to overproduce. And so we have, again, special, we give them lots of, of, of meat. You know, cows, would cows, are they supposed to eat meat? Are we supposed to eat meat? I mean, cows are eating, you know, cows eat more fish in this country than human beings do. Cows eat more. Have you seen a cow running? Do you see these cows? They're going to run into the stream and try to catch a fish? You know, it's so amazing. But scientists discovered that if you, it's called enriching, if you enrich their feed with fish meal, they'll fatten up faster and they'll give more milk. So they're eating huge amounts of fish and as well as pigs and chickens and dogs and cats and roadkill and everything else, that's in your cheese. That's in everything you're eating because that's what they, they enrich their feed with as well as other cows until they found out that gives mad cow disease. So, uh, But we force them to give a lot more milk than they normally would. They're, instead of giving 25 pounds of milk a day, they're giving over 100 pounds of milk a day. So they're losing a lot of you know, calcium in the milk. And so slaughterhouse workers say that dairy cows – uh, after they kill them, they can break their bones in their bare hands. They have such severe osteoporosis. Same thing with hens. And, you know, hens, they're very often their legs are breaking under them because they have such severe osteoporosis. So we sow the seeds of osteoporosis. We reap that in ourselves. We sow the seeds of, of social diseases. You know, so- sociologists say the greatest problem we have in our culture socially is the breakdown of, of our families, our family structures fracturing. What are we doing to billions of animals? We don't allow them to have any family. We destroy their families. They're all reduced to individual units of production with a, in, a, in a essentially a very heartless, violent economic system. And we find more and more people saying, yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> you know, we sow these seeds and we reap it in ourselves. And if you look at who gets rich on this, for example, the uh, pharmaceutical industry, do you know, why does it, have you re- seen how powerful the pharmaceutical industry is lately? I mean, they're basically running the government. How do they get so powerful? Because they're really rich. How do they get so wealthy? Because they're selling a lot of drugs. Who are they selling all these drugs to? There's three main markets. The first market is animals. There's over 10,000 different drugs and hormones and chemicals and other substances that have been approved to be forced on animals eaten 
to be raised for food. All kind, you know, 85% of all the antibiotics are fed to these poor animals. All kinds of drugs and hormones, psychological, all kinds of stuff is, is forced on them. Then people eat all that stuff. Then you have the second main market for the pharmaceutical industry where they get more money. That's people who eat the stuff and need medication for cancer and heart disease and strokes and, and, and liver disease and kidney disease and well, everything else, diabetes. Okay, so that's, wow, that's a lot of money they're getting right there. And then the third market, which is bigger than the other three. Anyone know what the third market is? The biggest one of all? The biggest one of all is, and this is, again, as you sow, so shall you reap. The pharmaceutical industry makes most, their most money in people needing drugs for psychological illness. You know, so people you know, need drugs for depression and for pain management and for uh, insomnia and for... Um, frustration and anxiety and all these things. And they're eating the flesh and secretions of animals who are suffering from depression and insomnia and anxiety and massive amounts of pain. So we have to understand that as we sow, we reap, and it happens on every level. And so the underlying message here for you is, again, this is an enormously positive message. Have you noticed how spectacularly beautiful our earth is? How beautiful the forests are? The the birds, the animals, the celebration of life here. Let's just give it a big hand. Yay, Earth. Woohoo! We love you. <laughs> this Earth is so beautiful and it's so abundant. We could easily feed everyone, all of all seven million billion of us, on a fraction of the land. That's a whole nother lecture. But basically, we have an amazingly inefficient system that's essentially the most insane thing we're doing is gr- gr- cutting down forests, growing huge amounts of grain, feeding it to animals, killing these animals, getting the diseases, doing experiments on animals to solve these diseases. I mean, the whole thing is a massive amount of violence, and, and it's absolutely unnecessary. And as each one of us understands this, moves our life so that we're living this, and then the greatest gift we can give is then to do the best we can to bring this message to others, to spread this message through love, and it's all about love. Veganism is nothing to be proud of. It's not being any better than anybody else. It's simply coming home to our hearts, looking with eyes that when we see a being, we see a being rather than seeing a thing. And once we do that, we develop naturally a mentality of radical inclusion. That's what veganism is. It's radical inclusion. It's saying, I'm going to include all beings within the sphere of my kindness and concern and then doing the best I can to live up to it. It's just the very beginning of a long spiritual path, but it's an essential step. So I just want to encourage all of you to do what you can to move in that direction and to however you can um, live this to to bless others. So I'm going to wrap it up there. I'm going to close with a short uh, poem. With um, by that I really love by um, uh, what's his name Madeline uh, the guy Shel Silverstein <laughs> right <laughs> the poet Shel Silverstein and it goes like this it's called Point of View Thanksgiving dinners sad and thankless Christmas dinners dark and blue when you stop and try to see it from a turkey's point of view Sunday dinner isn't sunny Easter feasts are just bad luck when you see it from the viewpoint of a chicken or a duck. Oh, how I once loved tuna salad, steak and lobster, lamb chops too, till I stopped and looked at dinner from the dinner's point of view. That's the idea, to kind of move and question the cultural programming that keeps us kind of nose to tail, just going along like this, and to break out of that and to question and realize we can have far greater health. You know, Madeline and I, we haven't been to doctors in 30-something years, 35 years. You know, we we can have... 
uh, health. It's natural. We can create a healthy world. It starts with our plates, really. So we're happy to talk to you. We have a table back here with books, and I'm happy to sign them. You get a free CD if you get a book. We have, they're all printed on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, so no animals uh, and, no, and uh, no trees were killed for those um, books. And we have that on audiobook. We have um, uh, CDs of music and Madeline's cards, as well as her paintings. I think how many? 18? 18 paintings of animals. This is one we really especially love. It's a new one of all the farmed animals. And so if you want to see Madeline about the paintings or me about the books at any point, we'll be here uh, for the next several hours. And we just want to thank all of you. I love you all so much. Thanks for the work you're doing to help bring this message to the world. Um, And we hope to work together. We have online programs to help uh, people do World Peace Diet courses. We have actually uh, several hundred people now that are – that are certified as World Peace Diet facilitators in this country and in other countries and are giving World Peace Diet study courses to help people go vegan and understand the deep structure of our uh, mistreatment of animals for food and to help create a new world that's possible. So keep up the great work, and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny Brown. Let's give Jenny a big hand. Thanks. It's really great.